It's November 16th, 2022, and I'm talking with Matt McGregor about the week's acquisition headlines. And so we'll start with one from Aviation Week, uh, how to partner with the Pentagon from AJ Piplica of Hermius. And he's talking about how they're kind of running their business and how hard it is to some degree doing business with the Department of Defense. They raised over $120 million in private capital. Uh, they're looking to get the quarter horse hypersonic aircraft uh, into test and then fly it in 23. And if they do so, it would be one third the schedule and one eighth the cost of comparable U.S. government programs. But the interesting thing here, at least for me, was I'm just going to quote it. In our experience, building the bridge across the Valley of Death involves the right mix of timing, small business innovation, research funding, same year budget reprogramming, intensive end user engagement and lobbying Congress. All these pieces must fit together just right or the bridge collapses. And so I think that sounds about right. What was your view? Yeah, it's a little bit sad, but, um, you know, it's interesting that how Sibber plays such a, a big role. I mean, because Hermes got so much uh, private private capital. So I was actually a little surprised to say that, that he uh, put as much emphasis on that. But um, but yeah, it definitely makes sense, like the, the budget year reprogramming, because even if they had like a solution right now that was ready to go, <laughs> the Air Force would not be able to be responsive to that. And like, oh, yeah, we want to buy, you know, 20 of those quarter horses, you know, for for this mission. They, they, they'd be three years. I think he makes that point in the article about it'd be three years before they could really kind of do anything at scale. So. Um, so yeah, lobbying Congress, all that kind of stuff, same year budget reprogramming. That's Those are the pieces that we're missing. Is the national defense strategy calling for acquisition reform? And this is from Cynthia Cook over at CSIS. And she basically is looking at the 22 NDS and finds things like, the current system is too slow and too focused on acquiring systems not designed to address the most critical challenges we now face. And she's basically asking, you know, how is this possible, <laughs> right? Like, we're still, how are we still not addressing the right issues after what's happened with the 2018 NDS and the authorities provided since 2016? She's, and then she lists out the top 10 defense acquisition programs, basically. The F-35, couple of submarine programs, the DG-51, Hercules, Ammo, Cyberspace, B-21, Raider, CVN-78, the carrier, and refueling for carriers. So those are the top programs they all seem pretty important uh so i don't know like the she kind of ends there with well you got to make trade-offs like are these things important or not important and i don't know what the answer to that is right because it's like the real question is what are the alternatives and at what price and what trade-offs are we willing to take in that planned force structure to do something different and that's a hard yeah, question I, I don't know the answer to <laughs> Yeah, it is. It's a hard question. I mean, I, I do think, though, it's 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 not like we're saying or I, I say we it's not like those that are advocating for um, new capabilities or, you know, different investments are saying throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, no doubt. Right. The F-35 has a role. The, you know, for sure, Virginia class submarine has a role. Columbia class submarine. Um DDG-51, you know, definitely, you know, um, maybe maybe that one has less of a role in my, my view in some, in some regards. But but in general, all these all these different platforms have a role to play. I mean, we're doing a lot in cyberspace. I, you know, I think we've made a lot of progress there. Um, B-21 is an important asset. Um, you know, having aircraft carriers are an important asset. I think the point that maybe got missed a little bit is that, um, that, that intent, I think, behind the NDS was to say we are not... 
um, we're not adapting to some of the specific challenges, particularly in the Pacific theater that we're going to face. Um, and so I think what's really missing is the hedge that, you know, Admiral Selby and others have talked about to say, are we, are we completely reliant on these, these systems that had a particular requirement back in the day, but that are not really perfect for that Taiwan fight because the right, like bringing those things in, you know, really close, you know, survivability and all that stuff. So it's not like these don't have a role. They're definitely part, they should be part of our overall military capability, but it's just like right now we're not investing in anything else. Like these are like all of our eggs are in these baskets. And so I think that's kind of the question to me that, it has not been answered. Yeah. yeah, if the F-35 doesn't have the the legs or the range, the submarines can be detected. There's a lot of kind of like talk. I'm not really clear on exactly what's going on, but potentially these things are not as, uh, you know, invisible as we might, they might have been 50 years ago or even 10 years ago. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. The hedges is, is the really important part there because, um, you're taking a lot of risk putting all of your eggs in one basket. Cause if one of those assumptions falls apart, um, maybe one day China can not only detect, but track an F 35, like that would be crazy. But if that happened, like, doesn't that just upset everything you've done? And now you're like, you're on the verge of losing because you've leveraged so much on that. Right. And it changes. Uh, the key thing I think is it changes and, and you know, there are, we know of, we know of weaknesses, right, in, in these different platforms. And so it, what it does is it changes the commander's calculus on how much risk they're willing to take for a particular operation. And so if they know, and they will know the weaknesses, uh, they might not, uh, you know, uh, you know, be able to defend Taiwan or be able to defend an ally in the way that they want because the risk may be viewed as unacceptable. And so it really is a political, it changes the political calculus about how, how good the U.S. can deter uh, you know, deter China and, and other adversaries. So, yeah. So I think that's kind of what it boils down to is like, well, if we were willing to take the r- risks that we have historically have not been, been not been willing to, then maybe these platforms are okay. Okay. What, is it okay to lose 20% of the F-35 fleet? Is that a risk that we're willing to take? Um, probably not. Right. I think most people will probably say no. So I think that's kind of the point is like, if, if we want to operate the way that we historically done, which is really low risk to, to our warfighters, then, then yeah, we have to do something different. Certainly, but it's also the fact that if you had a bunch more lower end fighters, then you're putting higher risk on the warfighter. So like a lot of the force structure problem comes from over indexing on survivability of any one given asset. Well, that is why unmanned is is, is yeah. really the key. I think most people have reached the point now where they're like, yeah, we need to be. We need. I mean, the the army came up with the whole concept for it. It was like the the robotic for, forward um, forward robotic force or something like that, where they basically envisioned soldiers being behind a robotic line of battle. You know, because of basically like you know the the the, the automated the unmanned vehicles would go out and take some of the heat you know, kind of suppress the enemy to some extent before you bring in your human forces. So, yeah, I think uh, I think that's probably, I think, the vision for almost every operational scenario where you expect casualties is you want that forward line of force. But we just haven't been investing in that either on the on the Army, Air Force or Navy side to any real scale. So so now we're just relying on manned assets. And yeah, what, what risks are we willing to take right as a country and as a military? And so, yeah, you do something different. Yeah, you posted on LinkedIn, I think it was today, about like a couple of Chinese um, combat, collaborative combat aircraft type 
drones that had significant mm-hmm. capability and 16 missile payload. Yeah. What did you learn about that? Well, I mean, you know, I'm sure that somebody smarter than I could pick that part and say, um, well, you know, that thing doesn't have this capability and it's vulnerable in this way. But I think the point is that China is actually scaling up like they're building, they're getting their manufacturing lines um, to be able to produce these things to the point that they're willing to sell them to other countries. And so that just shows you where their mindset is. It, it, you know, they, they actually are um, industrially, they are ready to produce UAVs, unmanned combat ships uh, at a scale that they are willing to export them. Where are we at in that? We are so far behind. We're, we're still prototyping and playing around and saying, well, well, well you know, we'll figure this out. We'll, we'll buy a couple of these and put them in Task Force 59. You know, Air Force is like, we'll stand up a CCA and build something in the 2030s. Yeah, so we're just like so far behind. So my point was more of just like China is stepping out in such a huge way on this. Like, are we, why are we not more aligned with that? Why are we not taking those same investments? So. Yeah, it's it feels like a little bit of the, the first mover belief that we still have in the Department of Defense where it's like, okay, we're so far ahead. We got to ITAR this. No one else can get it. We got to keep it close hold and not talk about it. Uh, Whereas China is more like, I want to sell this as much as possible, right? (laughs) I want to (laughs) like dominate the market like I do dominate the market for all other things. And just by virtue of having that, you know, industrial manufacturing capability and being the the creator of all this, they're going to have a kind of advantage just through that. So I tend to think that's probably the better way about it, especially since we're, we have all the allies, they would be more willing to buy from us if you had a like for like capability or a like for like price. And yet China will, will make those sales instead. Yeah. Or we should be buying from, you know, um, some of our allies are investing in, in some of these capabilities. And so we should be, you know, more joint, uh, joint programs with our allies. Uh, Hey, if, you know, if there's a, there's an ally that comes up with something just like we did with the wedge tail and all in the UK, uh, you know, for AWACS replacement, um, you know, like let's jump on that and let's, you know, let's start buying them, let's scale them up or stand up a U.S. subsidiary. And yeah, so there's a lot more we could do in that space. I don't think we're taking advantage of. Well, along those lines, one of the articles here is autonomous aircraft testing arrives from Eglin Air Force Base. So they basically got two of those Kratos Valkyrie uh, drone aircrafts uh, so that they can basically build out the infrastructure. And the whole thing around here was like kind of about testing and seeing what the long term implications and maintenance needs and the kind of dot mill PF kind of stuff, all you know. So the goal here by fall of twenty three is to leverage this platform for experimentation with crude, uncrewed teaming. So there you go. One of my questions there is also um, not just like should they be buying more than just two, uh, but who has all the flight test data? So I guess Kratos probably just owns all that stuff, and now the Air Force is, has to like build out their own kind of flight test data or. I don't know. Do you know if they kind of bought the data to that or how that worked out? Well, it was funded through A4L. I don't, I don't know that specific, I mean, in terms of like the exact IP, but um, A4L funded a lot of that, uh, you know, some of those, uh, some of those earlier uh, experiments. So uh, I imagine some of that was government funded, at least. Um, Kratos, Kratos does seem to have been really forward leaning. So some of those may have been on their own dime, but, but yeah. Um, but even regardless, right, I'm sure Kratos, they want to get into production. So the government has a lot of a lot of uh, leverage here if they 
wanted to access that data to, you know, kind of make the case for why this is, you know, is ready to be sort of advanced. And so, yeah, and I was really encouraged by this. I think Kratos has been out there for so long. I mean, they have like a port whole portfolio of different UAVs that uh, could be leveraged in different ways. And I think the government just really hasn't been taking advantage. So it's good to see at least that there's, this is like one step, getting, getting them on the Eglin range too is huge because now you can get a lot more uh, operational with some of it, actually try out some real, uh, you know, harder operational scenarios, just like F-35 has been using the Eglin range for the, you know, the last 15 years um, for testing different stuff. So, so yeah, this, this is a great a step forward for them. And so I hope it results in, you know, uh, uh, you know, procurement beyond two, two aircraft. Yeah. In the near future. Yeah. I heard that there's like a PEO CCA now for collaborative combat aircraft. <laughs> yeah. And it's I like, yeah, but I also saw that I think the 23 budget had like 50 million for whatever the follow on for, uh, the Skyboard program was. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, how does, how does this come together here? <laughs> right. Like is if they're creating a PEO, is it like the PEO of nothing or is it um, are they really thinking about resourcing this thing to a much larger degree or it's pulling in a bunch of other stuff uh, that I'm not aware of? Yeah, no, I think I think you will see. I think uh, Secretary Kendall, this is now a huge priority for him. And I think that's demonstrated by the stand up of the PEO, which, um, yeah, I was a little surprised that they broke it out from NGAD. Uh, but it, 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 I think it does show that this is one, something they want to feel faster. Um, so they don't want to be in the 2030s. They want to get this out faster. And so I think, I think it is a positive. I think the Air Force is, it has turned a corner on, on, the, on the importance of this. So I think you will see much greater dollars going to uh, CCA. And I think you're going to see um, a demand signal for that to be fielded uh, in, the, in the very near term. So probably I would say by, by 26 or something like that, they're prob- they probably want to have something out there because um, they, they just see that yeah, they, they can't wait. They can't, they just can't continue to wait years and years and years for this thing. And I think you've also seen Secretary Kendall sort of back off on the requirements. When it first came out, CCA was going to have to be something that like escorted the B-21 and, and had, you know, some of the same characteristics, which would have made it a much more exotic platform. I think that those requirements have been backed off and it's now viewed as, uh, okay, well, this could team with the F-15 or an F-16 or an F-35. So, so now you've started to see that uh, this could have capabilities that are closer to uh, some of our legacy platforms versus it being a uh, super exotic, you know, complete stealth kind of, kind of thing. So, yeah. So I think, I think it's good that they got the Kratos piece in there that will get, um, that will get us some real good data on the man done man teaming, some of the challenges, the con ops, you know, con ops issues and things like that. So no, I think this is the right course for it, but um, yeah, we'll have to see. We'll have to see exactly how much money, right. In 24, when the 24 budget comes out, that will be a big teller about how important this really is. Yeah, but if they're going to field this thing at scale kind of by 26, you're waiting for the 24 budget to roll around. You know, you're, you lost a lot of time. You put something on a contract. Um, that's, it's kind of hard. Anyway, we'll move on. DDGX Destroyer could cost up to $3.4 billion a hull and SSNX Attack Boat up to $7.2 billion, says CBO report. And so the Navy here is estimating that the DDG Next will cost only 10% more than the DDG-51 Flight 3 today. So uh, that's about 2.1 to 2.4 billion. But the full load displacement is actually 40% greater. So as we do in the Department of Defense, we love to do cost per pound and just scale that out. So DDG here estimates 
uh, or sorry, the CBO estimates that the DEGX will come in at 3.1 to 3.4 rather than the 2.1 or greater than two, a little bit more north of 2 billion for the Navy estimate. Um, and it's going to have a larger hull, more power, more stealth characteristics, greater capacity to accommodate installation of new weapons and other capabilities into the future. And then there's also the SSNX, the next generation attack boat for submarines to follow on the Virginia class. So the Virginia class costs about 2.8 billion per hull. The Navy was estimating roughly 5.6 billion for the SSNX and the Navy and the CBO puts on another um, couple billion on top of that. So, you know, that's just, a, it's a, it, getting back to our previous discussion on like the major programs, you know, just having a 10% withhold rule or something, you would get a lot of capability just out of that 10% withhold of that for a hedge bet or just like an alternative method of accomplishing the mission through alternative means um, that place greater emphasis on numbers and capacity as opposed to exquisite capability. So I don't know. I mean, the Navy might need to get saved somehow (laughs) because the DDGX (laughs) and the SSNX is going to take up a lot of money and you're already invested in Columbia. So those are the only things, if those are going to cost a lot more than kind of current estimates, then the only other way is just massive, you know, plus ups to the budget. Yeah. And there's, there's no doubt that these systems, you know, probably have some real applicability um, for, for some of the capabilities that are going to have, it's going to be more focused on hypersonics and lasers and, you know, missile defense and, or air defense. Um, and so, you know, this will be, this will be something you want in the inventory. I think the question becomes like, how much more do you invest in the development? Like, you know, and then how many of these do you buy? Because the procurement piece is going to be uh, the killer. Um, you know, if you are trying to buy these in numbers and every single year, you know, because you need to keep the industrial base because the one shipyard that can produce these needs to have, you know, constantly in the pipeline. That to me is the challenge. The fact that we don't have options where we can trade off and say, you know what, we need a few of these, but we want to also build in between building these, we want to build, you know, some of these cheaper, less exotic (laughs) vessels that just have a lot of like, you know, VLSs on them or something. Um, I think that's our, that's the big challenge here is that if the Navy wants this and they, they, they think they need it for the hypersonic and laser, you know, kind of platform, then, um, you know, the political system will basically ensure that they buy these in perpetuity, right? Like we just know that. And so I don't know who would save them, to be honest with you, because we, we just know how the shipyards work and stuff like that. So until we get to a point where we can do multiple things in the shipyard so that they keep the, keep the force, keep the industrial capacity, but not continue to just build exotic, the most highly exotic stuff that we'll never have in mass. Um, it's going to be a, it's going to be a challenge for the for the Pacific Theater. Yeah, most certainly. And I think one of the challenges will be like if you have to trade off, you know, scaling or putting serious money to some kind of UUV or you know some kind of unmanned vessel that looks to be making some headway, but this thing, you know, this thing isn't going to get fielded until the 30s right like we're not going to get a ddgx or mm-hmm. an ssnx until the 30s so if you're really focused on a 2020 scenario like you're just going to have to say look you don't even know what technology is going to exist in the 2030s we're just going to have to like you know we'll get there when we get there um do your planning but we're going to have to rob some of that you know 
I don't know, right. delay some of it. I mean, tough choices are going to have to be made unless Congress decides we don't care about, you know, inflation or the debt. Yeah, I, I, yeah, it, it is a tough trade off because I'm, I mean, uh, the hypersonic and the things they want to do with the DJX make complete sense, you know, in terms of the the enhanced range and other things that come along with it. Yeah, the the, the load displacement, you know, all that stuff that that is really important. So I think they can probably make the case that these are needed. I guess the question just comes in terms of the numbers and um, the other impacts, right, that we we can't articulate fully here, but that I'm sure the Navy could in terms of, yeah, what, what, what things can you not do by doing this, right? So what other things could you do that would add, you know, more mass, more capability in the near term? So, yeah, it's a tough trade-off because clearly this is something that, that I'm sure the Navy absolutely wants to have in their inventory because they're, they're moving out on the laser front very fast. You know, hypersonics are going to play a more important role in the future. So, yeah, no, nothing easy here. <laughs> Moving on to the Army here, IBCS completes key tests, teeing up full rate production decision for the Army. And this is the Integrated Battle Command System. I believe that's the acronym there, which is basically a, a, an integrated air missile defense capability. It brings together a bunch of sensors from multiple locations, but it has its own uh, sensors as well. And then basically shoots Patriot missiles. I don't know if it has other types of effectors that it can that it can use, but it seems like They've been doing some tests here. Um, they've been pretty successful in terms of actually, you know, hitting cruise missiles and the like in tests, despite stressing electronic attack um, situations. And one of the key aspects of it is is kind of touted as this JADC2 thing, right? They integrated uh, Marine Corps Gator radar, U.S. F-35 aircraft, Navy's cooperative engagement capability as well. So they can, I'm, I'm not really sure exactly how, I would like to understand the system a little bit better. You can kind of see what it is. There's just like a small like base kit, which has like sensors and a little tent and stuff like that. And then you'll have some Patriots there. Um, but it looks like the whole point of this is that they take data from multiple locations to create a track, I guess, figure out the missile trajectories and then determine which of these stations you might have many of these stations out there, you know, is kind of like best situated to hit it or whether it's one of the IBCSs or a different, you know, kind of missile defense location. So yeah, I, I don't know. I'd like to learn a little bit more because folks in the army seem to be pretty stoked about it, despite the fact that it kind of came from troubled news, right? Like the IAMD mm -hmm. was a pretty troubled program. Um, and, and now it looks like they're kind of revamping at this open architecture thing and delivering, you know, aspects of the JADC2 mission and it's not getting a lot of news. It's kind of under the radar, but potentially it's delivering. So, you know, that's a good news story uh, to a degree. Yeah. And I will say the key strength here. So this is AI, IBCS is part of the AIMD program and which is actually a software pathway program where they're migrating. Um, they're, they're on the software pathway, but they're going to be fully on the software pathway after they complete their 4A production. So the hardware, while the hardware piece is, um, you know, no doubt it's a, they've you know md between mda and all the all the investments in air defense and missile defense like this is you know this is all results of that in terms of the hardware uh and the ability to sort of you know uh get to have have you know greater success and it looks like looks like the, some of the systems that were sent to ukraine um for for air defense have actually had like a 100 percent success rate i read about that so so yeah i think we've made some good strides on missile defense but they really the key enabler here is the software piece and the ability to take 
you know, because data integration, uh, especially for, when you're integrating different sensors with different uh, different formats and how you ingest that and how you, uh, you know, convert that to usable formats and all that stuff is it, really complicated. Uh, the Air Force is still figuring some of that out. And I think uh, the Army really does have a great system here uh, that they've sort of architected right. They're, um, you know, operating a CI/CD pipeline to get the capability out, uh, improvements um, on a you know, quarterly basis. So, so they're doing uh, they're doing all the right stuff here. I think. I Who, think the, who's running the CI/CD pipeline? The Army. The Army, the Army software factory. Or no, 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 no. It's not the Army software factory. I forget that they're. I forget what they're using. Um, I think they may have stood up their own because they have. They have. They have because they do have to. The one thing they have to do is they have a really uh, robust, um, uh, you know, integration facility because they do have a lot of hardware and they have to integrate, make sure the software is integrated with that. So they have really robust testing suites. And so, yeah, but they're, they're doing all the right things. And I think their ability to pull in these Marine Corps sensors and, and interface with the Air Force C2 is all a result of the fact that they've sort of built up that software, agile software, modern, you know, modern practices, DevSecOps, all that stuff that we've talked about for your last few years. Uh, they're taking advantage of all that. And I think that's what's allowed them to be successful here. And that's what, those will be the real capability improvements that come is the, the you know, improved ability to, to integrate, but also to sort of characterize uh, how you present that on the, on the front end, on the GUI to the operators, how you present COAs. So you start to develop COAs, you know, that, uh, that can be taken, you know, faster and faster. So there's all that kind of stuff uh, that's all going to be software enabled. So I think that's probably uh, one key to the IPCS story. Well, cool. Thanks for sharing that. We'll move on to Ukraine will create a fleet of sea drones to protect water areas, Zelensky. Uh, and so a few weeks ago, a group of drones uh, reportedly attacked a Russian Federation Black Sea fleet, and at least three ships were hit, including one of their frigates. Um, and yeah, so it's pretty interesting here. It looks like they, they had a, a picture of one of these drones, um, pretty small. And apparently it can have, it has a range of a hundred kilometers can reach over 70 kilometers an hour. So it's got some, uh, some, some speed and range, um, unknown underwater kamikaze drone is what they're <laughs> calling it. And yeah, they're actually pretty cheap too. I think, uh, I don't have the figure here, but they wanted to buy a bunch of them for a few million dollars. So it was like, well, this is like, what's going on here? This is, this seems like a reasonable capability at a, at a pretty cheap price that they just hacked together here. They got an explosive detonator, warhead, a camera, satellite antenna, electric motor, um, pretty basic, uh, but looks pretty sleek too. Yeah. It's a, it's like only 145 pounds. I, I found that kind of amazing. Uh, it's only 12 feet long. So I know this is the kind of stuff that really just makes me go like, this is the stuff we need. We need more of like, man, this could be so useful in the Pacific theater. Um, I remember it was a couple of years ago. Uh, it was a company that was had demonstrated an anti-tank capability, and essentially what it was, it was these like things that rolled on the ground, almost like a hedgehog, and they basically just had an explosive charge, and you could send out like a hundred of them. Uh, you know, if like tanks were advancing or something, you send out a hundred of these things, and they would roll under the tank and explode uh, a, a kind of a you know perfectly shaped device or whatever that was could go through the armor, uh, and it would like take out the tank. And I was like, oh my god, like don't even buy tanks just buy a bunch of these things <laughs> you know so this is one of those things exactly it's like sort of like yeah it's not let's not buying like we don't need a hypersonic missile for every ship let's just buy a thousand of these things right. and send them out like you can only shoot so many of them you know like so then we're gonna gonna get through so yeah anyway i just yeah, don't I get it. how this there's no money for for doing like 
DOD can spend all this money on all this stuff and yet like it can't afford to just buy like a hundred of these things. So it'll cost like $20 million or something, you know? Yeah, I know, man. We, we uh, need, I mean, the Ukrainians got inventive when they were threatened and, and I think people, we haven't felt threatened. So that's part, part of the reason. Pentagon closing in on 9 billion cloud contract award after scuttling Jedi. And so here, this is kind of re- related back to the JADC2 concept again. Looks like leadership really wants the joint warfighting cloud capability to really be um, part of that. And it's going to go across all security classification levels. And eventually they're going to make the award at the end of 2022. I guess they're on track. So uh, December is kind of the time frame that they lined up and they're, they're saying they're still going to track to that. So we'll see if we can eventually get that thing, you know, after years of litigation and think about how much money was spent on Jedi and nothing came out of it. Right. (laughs) Like think about it. It's just crazy to think about like how hard that was and, now we're just moving to a multi-cloud kind of architecture that was probably the right thing in the first place. But what can you do? Well, I think the good news, though, is that, you know, yeah, I don't know how much AWCC will be used by the services because, you know, in the interim, the the Army and the Air Force, I'm not 100% on what the, uh, what the Navy did, but I know for the Army and Air Force, they have they have huge cloud contracts that have been awarded. And, um, you know, Cloud One is something that uh, a lot a lot more programs are using on the Air Force side. And so we're already, we're already operating in a multi-cloud environment. We're already building, you know, IL4, IL6 environments um, for software development and deployment. So I don't know exactly what this will bring. Um, I, I guess it will provide more options um, for folks that, that want to use it, but this is already happening. And so, um, so, yeah, I think it would be interesting to see what the real impact of it is. Um, but yeah. That's a good point. Congress poised to back multi-year weapons purchases, LaPlante says, and this is from the GMU-DAU conference. Uh, they're going to give us multi-year authority, and they're going to give us funding um, to really put it into the industrial base. I'm talking about billions of dollars into the industrial base to fund these production lines. Uh, and so one of the points here that LaPlante was also saying was, you need these multi-years because in the past, you know, I, I suppose when you just say, oh, we're going to buy a bunch of stuff um, what because we're in a crisis. Well, in a couple of years time, are you actually going to buy it or not? Because like you had no commitment to it. You could change your mind. Geopolitical things change, but the companies had to make their investments in the production lines. And then the quote here is, are you going to leave me holding the bag? So um, he talks a lot about kind of demand certainty uh, as well. So multi-years, demand certainty, uh, munitions, what's your take? Yeah, no, I mean, it's good to hear. I, I, I don't disagree. I mean, I think multi-year is, is helpful. Um, you know, to an extent, we've, we've already done that, though. Like, I mean, most of the production contracts are, are you know, five, 10-year contracts, and they have you know, economic order quantities in there. Uh, there's an expect. There's a min. There's a min order quantity, and so there's an expectation that the government will buy a certain number of them. So I, I guess the question is, when we talk about billions of dollars. Is okay. Do we up the min quantity? Is that how we actually get this? You know, in terms of execution, we're going to have like a much higher min quantity, so they feel like okay, the government has to order this, or we don't produce any, so it's they have a more leverage. Um, 
But then the, uh, the other challenge that I have in general is like, this is a little bit of like a day late and a dollar short because we're talking about giving them money now. It's going to take for these complicated missiles, like, you know, we're talking probably JASMs, right? JASMs, LRASMs, uh, those types of systems. We're probably not talking, we're not talking JDAMs and small diameter bombs as much as we're probably talking about the longer range stuff. So, or, and, and hypersonics, right? So, you know, how, how much time is it going to take to scale? You know, even if they do it today, it's still going to take years to get those complex munitions, uh, the production lines expanded. And then is that even close to the quantities that we're going to need for a fight? I, I would say no. Um, so I really think we, we need to put money against the, the systems that we have, but we also need to be investing in other, other missiles and like, you know, not relying purely on the JASM line or the LRASM line. We need, we need to get more, more things in the pipeline. I know there's a JADM program coming down that's going to do some stuff. And there are a couple of weapons platform uh, programs coming down, but I think they're of the same sort. They're very highly complex. You know, everything is sapped up and it's going to be, it's going to take, uh, you know, it's going to be equally hard to produce as, as JASMs and LRASMs are. So, so I think we just need, like we talked about before, we need a munitions hedge as well. We need some less complex munitions that, have some range, but don't have to be, you know, super stealthy and have like multi sensors and things like that. Things that can be, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to launch them into this zone. If they hit something great, like, you know, just, just like we're going to have to do probably with the audit, with some of our autonomous, the USVs, you know, that have weapons on them. Um, you know, when we get into the fight, it's just going to be like anything in this zone is, is fair game, you know? So I, I just think, I just think we need, we also need to stand up some, some simpler, munitions that can be produced um, at mass like we did with JDAM, but we need something that's more suitable for the, for the Pacific theater. So sorry to say all that, but it was, yeah, that's my, that's my challenge with this. Uh, spread. Yeah. And one of the things that they could also do is just like throw a lot of money into energetics because just like right now, what do you know is the long lead item? Just like throw money at that stuff and figure out the, what it's going to go on later, whether it's going to be like a, you know, a, a kamikaze drone or whether it's a JDAM or whatever it is. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a good point. Yeah. Build up, build up the, uh, the engine base and build up the, yeah, the, yeah, the energetics. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good point. If you, yes, go to the, go to the lower levels of the WVS versus, versus focusing on the, the end state. Yeah. That's actually a really good point. Uh, one of the last ones I want to do here, uh, just to get your view on it, because I think it's interesting in the space force realm, New guidance from Space Force Acquisition Boss, the traditional way must be reformed. Uh, so he's talking about, he, he has a, a list of things that are important here, uh, including building smaller satellites, enabling teamwork, award contract. So some of these, I was trying to understand, he was like, the traditional ways must be reformed. And then he says, you need to get the acquisition strategy correct, have clear, unambiguous statements of work, basically have really good requirements. Award contracts with realistic cost and schedule targets. You know, don't do buy-ins. Uh, don't a- avoid low bids. Make sure you get the cost and schedule right. Maintain stability in programs, right? So it's just like, wait, these are, how is this reforming the traditional system? This is <laughs> super doubling down on the traditional system, which basically yeah. says the future is knowable. Threats won't change. Just get the acquisition strategy and plan right and then execute to it with as min- minimal variance as possible, right? Like, I, don't, I didn't see what was going on here. So, well, I wanted to get your take on it. No, I mean, he did have some talk about, um, you know, kind of simplifying, you know, some, some, some aspects. And 
uh, you, there were a couple things that, that we liked in there, but on the whole, I'm with you. I, I was struggling. I was struggling to see how that's different from what we used to do with, you know, defense acquisition boards where, you know, we drag the PMs in there and like, you know, beat them up a thousand ways, you know, about like, well, you better have all your risk mapped out and you better be, you know, have every single one of them mitigated and everything, everything perfect. Cause when in the next cycle, when we evaluate you, we're going to, we're going to say, you know, did anything change in your plan? And if you did, you know, we're going to beat you up again. So yeah, not sure how that is different. Um, I will say if we actually do move to a, a place though, where we are, you know, simplifying or commoditizing uh, some of our purchases or we are, you know, buying more commercial, then I think you actually can, you know, probably get better at your estimates. You can probably get better at uh, actually keeping with a baseline and things like that. So I think it really depends on kind of the broader, uh, you know, requirements, uh, you know, how the requirements actually come out and, and how they're, um, and how they're delivered. Like we, we just need to take advantage of some, some of the other opportunities uh, that are out there. So, yeah. So if we try to buy the same things we've always tried to buy and do this approach, we're going to end up in the same thing, right? Lots of overruns and things like that. So nothing really will change in my view. Yeah. One of the conundrums for me was always, we focus so much money on bigger and jointer and, and more multi-mission platforms. And then we just lose all the data with which to actually make predictions about cost schedule, technical and stuff like that. So you, you get into like, I want to be able to make realistic targets but the lack of data of things actually in the real world means i'm like inward looking and i don't actually have any statistical validity because every program is like one dot right and i have all these things going on and i can't actually make inferences about anything at all so i don't know that's a good point yeah it's like there's there was well dr ripper always used to say it like every program should only have one miracle, you know, should only require one miracle to field. Yeah. So if you have, you know, we tend to start programs that have like, you know, 10 miracles need to happen in order for it to all come together. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. Like sorting through that, the cost, like, okay, what really drove, what really drove these overruns? What, you know, you have to like really do the diagnostics to, to understand what data can be applied to a new thing that it, that isn't as multi-mission if it, you know, it doesn't have the exact same requirements. It's yeah. You have to kind of parse that. So Yeah. It's a good point. All right. That's all we got time for today. Thanks for joining us, Matt. We'll talk to you next week. Yeah. Thanks, sir.